0: Uh, Morning, Hillcrest. My name is David. I love being one of the pastors around here, and we are really excited to have the Phipps join us next Sunday. Um, and uh, and then during second service, they'll put a workshop together. If you haven't signed up, it would be a great opportunity to uh, to hear what God's been doing through their stories. And uh, and then around here, we uh, we value life and community, and so we are launching our third uh, movement through the Gospel of Luke, or continuing our our movement through the Gospel of Luke with uh, this last trimester of life groups. If you're in a life group. You're going to get one of these packets from your life group leader. If not, I'd encourage you to pick up one of these packets, a tool to continue to journey through Luke with us. And uh, and just a uh, uh, heads up, we, we've been talking, how do we live as everyday missionaries? We look around at our culture, and so we've been talking about what is God's heart for human sexuality. And so I, I just want to give maybe a 30,000 foot at this four-week uh, experience on Sunday nights. To uh, engage, whether it might be something that is for you. And so, one of the questions we, we look around our world, we go, Sexuality is a fundamental part of what it means to be human. In a world that is obsessed with sex, ought the church have something to say? And so, where I wanted to start was just uh, reminding us that we're not perfect. We are beggars who have found some bread and want to share it with everyone. And so, uh, as a church, where can we grow? We think maybe talking about sex as a gift of God is something that we don't hear a ton about, but it's something we care deeply about that, that is a gift from God. And, and we wanna hear God's design for human sexuality, but trying to be more appropriately open about the challenges that the local church experiences. When you look across the national landscape, oh, there's room to grow. and uh, And being more aware of the vulnerabilities to abuse that have... Uh, existed in the local church across the national landscape, but also being very cognizant that parents are the greatest influence in their kids. And so how do we support parents to continue to educate uh, their kids about God's design around this idea? And there's a quote I'd love to read. I think I've read it before around here, but it comes from uh, a book by Sean McDowell, Josh McDowell's son. and, And he describes what would it look like if the world more fully embodied god's design for human sexuality imagine a world in which everyone followed god's design for sex and marriage there would be no sexually transmitted diseases no abortions no brokenness from divorce every child would have a mother and a father and experience the love and acceptance each parent uniquely offers there would be no rape no sex abuse no sex trafficking no pornography no need for a me too campaign Think of healing and wholeness if people simply live Jesus' life-giving words regarding human sexuality. And so uh, I just want to do a, a 30,000 foot of, of what we are going to be embarking on uh, over the next four weeks on Sunday evening starting April 23rd. And I just assume in a room like this, that quote touches a lot of our hearts, if not all of our hearts in some degree, whether that's some abuse that you've experienced or shattered relationships through divorce in the challenges of heterosexuality in addictions or pornography. It may be the attraction to other individuals, either within your family, you have people that wrestle with homosexuality or even in your life, there's that challenge. Again, through, through challenges that just shatter our lives around this idea, I just assume it touches all of our lives in some way. And so for us, what's, what's our heart? It feels like there's different postures that, that the, the world takes, that the Christian uh, community takes. And one is, is to just flee, to just kind of go hide in a hole somewhere, put your head in the ground and, and believe that there's no challenges that exist. Second, it feels like people who just wanna fight And yet Paul tells us our our fight isn't against flesh and blood, against these spiritual forces. And so uh, instead of fighting, others just wanna accept. They just wanna affirm and accept. And and instead the posture that we continue to wanna take around Hillcrest is lovingly standing for the hope of the gospel. Now that might appear to be fighting for some because when there's movement uh, to shift us, we don't move, we instead lovingly stand. And so, so here's what we're hoping as we're faced with cultural shifts around human sexuality, our heart is to demonstrate Jesus' love and compassion without agreement. And so three, three ideas that we've been sharing that we hope that one of these touches your heart, that we desire to patiently teach and guide those who are still developing their own convictions of the Christian faith. What, what does the biblical narrative, the story, uh, say about this issue. And so we always wanna to look to the text to guide what we believe to be true. And, uh, and then we desire to develop, empower and release everyday missionaries to live out and lovingly stand for this truth in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our world. And so we, we long to be disciples who follow Jesus, build community and seek transformation. Those three lifestyles for us capture what Jesus said, go help people experience life as a disciple of Christ. And so we want to embody that in our workplaces. What would it look like for us to to share God's heart around this area where so many people are looking for hope? And then third, we desire to love and support those who are wrestling with their own sexuality, walking alongside them as they pursue life with Jesus. And so uh, four sessions, and I don't think for many this is necessarily gonna be new, but maybe a reminder of what the biblical text says. Uh, session one is just gonna be about being made in God's image, about being made male and female and, and God designing life to work in a certain way. In Genesis 1, 26 and 28, he says this, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female He created them and blessed them and said, go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, of the sea, the birds of the heavens. So in our personal story, uh, battling against infertility was an expression of uh, a sin-filled world that distorted God's design. It it didn't make Casey any less of a woman or me, any less of a man. And yet it was an expression of some of the brokenness that exists when it comes to God's perfect design when we wrestle through infertility. The second session, we're gonna try and uh, tackle Song of Solomon and, and unpack a few of the chapters around this idea of I am my beloved and, and believing that it gives us a picture of this human relationship of, of man and woman. And, and I love where Song of Solomon starts and ends. It starts with one of the characters. The song is a, a sh- she and then he and then others. And, and, the, and the book just unpacks different responses and, and, and exaltations. But it begins with the woman sharing this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. And the song ends hearing from her again. She says, make haste my beloved and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. One of the commentaries says this, it's it's just glorifying this picture of who she is. And the pictures we get of the man is essentially going, wow. And and, and so we're gonna unpack what is God's heart for those that are single, married, or engaged, um, or dating. And then session three, uh, stepping into the design and distortions of sexuality. We, we look around our world and, and it seems to be fracturing around these ideas. Um, I was talking to my kids earlier and, um, and they love turning on the gas fireplace in our home. And they just push a button and on comes the gas fireplace. And as you could imagine, Yes, I do not like cutting wood and stoking a fire. Pressing a button and having the fire turn on is much more appealing to me. Many of you probably like making a fire, but there's just something about that fire that is attractive and, and, and it draws my kids in. They love just turning it on and watching it come ablaze, but there's something about that fire and where it's contained, it, it's in a fireplace, And so I tell my kids, you know, we can celebrate the passion and what it looks like to see that fire where it's intended in a fireplace. Please don't go to your room and start a fire in your room. That that would be less helpful to this idea of where fires ought to be expressed. In the same way, God designed a place where this passion of human sexuality gets expressed in a husband and wife relationship in marriage but we watch our country essentially being burned to the ground around this topic where sex has become a religion. And so how do we respond? Paul tells us this in Colossians four, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, how to lovingly stand. And then on May 21st, we'll do one last session And each of these will contain stories from our people sharing about what God has done in and through their life around these ideas. And we'll end with all things new where we find healing, forgiveness, and grace in the cross. And just briefly look ahead to Revelation where he will wipe away every tear from their eye. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And we'll hear from some of our people it may be a more uncut, raw way and real way, because sometimes it feels like when we tell stories, we love tying them up with a pretty bow and having them all figured out instead. For some of these stories, they're still in process and, and they're not complete, but believing God is actually at work. And so I hope you join us at, uh, at this initiative to just explore God's heart for human sexuality. I'd love to invite Dave Goodgill up right now, and, and he is a guest speaker that's with us this morning. He's been a pastor for 40 some odd years, recently retired, and and uh, has done some things with Focus on the Family, uh, with Walk Through the Bible, and has some great things to share with us this morning. And, and uh, we got connected through him, uh, to him through someone in our church family, and from the moment I got to connect with him, what I loved about this man... Uh, you could tell that pastor's heart. He instantly wanted to start asking me questions. And if you know me, I love keeping people. I love being on the offense and asking questions. But to see his heart and interest for us and our church family. So, Matt, pray Thank for you. us as we, yeah, uh, as we get Peter. in. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, God, you are so good. Thank you for Dave, for his heart, his passion for you, and his desire to encourage us uh, as we continue through Luke. And so, reveal yourself this morning and uh, speak through him. Always for your glory, we pray.
1: Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's your sure privilege to be here with you. I think this may be the first time I've ever been in Wisconsin, and uh, we're having a delightful time. We've been here since Wednesday. It was great weather, and I, I see it's changing a little bit. I don't know what that means yet, but uh, we're going to experience whatever it means with you at least for a few minutes (laughs) and we're going to get back on the plane on tuesday and go on back to california so we live in california merced california which is central california as a pastor we've lived in southern california i think there's a connection that david made to the pastor that preceded me in that church in california And uh, we had a great time there for 21 years as a lead pastor there, then went over to Phoenix for seven years, seven years in Phoenix. Now, if you've ever been to Phoenix in the summer, you don't ever want to go there in the summer. It's not a good idea. So you count how many years you've been there by how many summers you survived. And we got through seven. Thank God he didn't keep us there for 40 years wandering in the desert. Uh, seven was plenty, uh, but it was an amazing time in ministry. And then we, the last 11 years, were in um, the Mountain View area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area and had a wonderful time there. And now I have the privilege of ministering to pastors who are part of our network of 120 churches in Northern California and Nevada. And so we were coming to hang out with Jim and Barbara Ludwig they're right back there, and the Feldmans are right there. And these are the people that we know that are connected to your church, and it's just an honor to come and be a part of this with you today. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 8. It's a continuing part of this series that you're all in and i'm very excited about being a part of that i've been watching the services over the last three weeks and it's really benefited me and i hope and pray that what we talk about today will be a big benefit to you as i said i last ministered in the bay area and i was in a church that longed to do evangelism better than we were doing evangelism at the time I think that most of us as individuals or Christ followers long to do evangelism better than we are right now. It's kind of like prayer. We feel like we can make progress in prayer. We feel like we can make progress in evangelism. I really believe that. So part of that I saw in terms of the desire to do better came through our life groups. We have life groups like you have life groups. And that was a special thing in our church. We had five reasons for our life groups, five purposes. I always use my hand to remember these reasons. I don't know how you remember things. This is how I remembered our purposes for our life groups. One was Bible application. This was very important in our life groups. Secondly was fellowship. Two are better than one, so I put up two fingers here. If you want to do this with me, feel free, you know, if you want to engage that way. (laughs) Otherwise, just to keep your hands down. But anyway, so Bible application. And fellowship. The third was a pledge. I was a Boy Scout. This is a pledge, you know? Well, this is a pledge to do ministry, a pledge to do ministry. We said, we want to help people discover their giftedness and serve. And then the fourth area was my pinky finger, and that reminded us of prayer, the P for pinky or prayer, okay, prayer. We knew that needed to be a, an important part of our groups. And the last thing, I stick our thumb out and say outreach, Out and outreach, okay? And that's that whole area of evangelism. And over the years, as we talked through different areas of our ministry and strengths and weaknesses, we wanted to strengthen especially evangelism because on the one hand, every time we asked our leaders, could you rank from strength to weakness these five areas in terms of your ministry with your group right now, which ones would you have as strong and weak? And always, or almost always, evangelism was Fifth. It was the weakest link, if you want to say it that way, in our ministry. And I think that's always been a struggle in the church. In fact, we go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul's writing to Timothy, the young pastor at the church in Ephesus, which was a church that Paul pastored at before Timothy got there. And we're told that Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 5, but you, Timothy, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship do the work of an evangelist, and then he says, discharge all the duties of your ministry, which is to say, you can't get the ministry thing done without doing the work of evangelist. Now, I take it that perhaps Timothy did not have the gift of evangelist, but even so, he was called to do the work of an evangelist, just like we may not have the gift of evangelist, but the Lord still wants us to do that work. We're to be his witnesses, and Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, the Great Commission is all about first going, going. So that's all about evangelism. And I take it that Paul had to talk to Timothy about this because potentially this could have been an area of their ministry that just sort of drifted away. And sometimes the older a church gets, the greater the likelihood that this area of evangelism will drift away. I don't think churches drift toward evangelism. I, dr- I believe they drift toward edification. And edification is primarily focused on the family, the church family, and building the family up. And obviously, that's important. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it's focused on edification, preaching the word. So, Paul in no way is demeaning edification, but he's also trying to strengthen or ensure that the church is also as committed to evangelism. It's in the same chapter. And so, I think... Attention to get him to take whatever focus is necessary and put it on that area. Another way to just simply say this is I think an older a church gets, the more the likely, the, a greater likelihood that the church is going to cover up its windows that look out at the world with mirrors and look at themselves. So we gotta be careful in this area. It's, it can be a big struggle for us. We're living in a world right now that needs good news, don't we? Absolutely. I don't know if you pay attention to the news at night. You know, you watch the nightly news. Every now and then we turn it on. We're crazy, but we turn it on. And and I'm not suggesting that you do that, but we turn it on. And a few few months ago, we turned on the nightly news in our area. And, you know, it was the same old thing. They talked about uh, shootings and deaths and bad weather. And the next night we turned it on again, Glutton for Punishment. And they talked about more shootings and more deaths and more bad weather. In fact, while we're watching that second broadcast, Tuesday night, Monday night was the other one, I said to Bernice, Is this a recording of last night? She said, No, this is live. I mean, it's like, where is the good news? If you're paying, you were looking for good news from the, the news network, the broadcast. Probably going to be very rare uh, and coming from there. But I'll tell you this, it needs to be frequent, constant from the church. The church is the bearer of good news. We have all kinds of good news to share with others. And so it's in light of that where Jesus in Luke chapter 8 is talking about sowing seed, which is in the old concept here was broadcasting seed. I mean, when you're talking about broadcasting on radio or television, you're talking about getting those, transmitting the signals out there so people can benefit by it. Well, broadcasting the seed is sowing seed. It's scattering seed mechanically or by hand. It's just getting the seed out there. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. So in light of that, in light of that need, let's, let's learn together. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. After this, this is how it begins. After this, and then this here is, goes back to what you talked about last week, this amazing encounter that Jesus had with this woman, this sinful woman who was washing his feet and kissing them. And, and, and after that, after how she found forgiveness and how she found compassion from Jesus. It says that Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another. He's in Galilee ministering, proclaiming what? The good news of the kingdom of God. I mean, that's what he did, and obviously that's what he wants his followers to do. It says the 12 were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. That's a great picture, isn't it? Jesus obviously is impacting people in a variety of ways. He's spreading the good news of the kingdom of God, that people through his work can come to uh, salvation and be a part of God's kingdom. Be removed from the kingdom of, or be no longer citizens of the kingdom of darkness, but now become members of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom, as it says here, of God. Jesus is spreading that good news. He, at the same time, is healing people of various diseases. He's liberating them from demonic oppression or possession. So that's all a part of his ministry. And these people are hanging out with him. And that makes complete sense, doesn't it? I mean, when somebody has helped you in some way, whether it's physically, spiritually, relationally, or whatever it is, you want to be thankful. You want to express your thanks to them. You want to show them your support. That's what's going on here. I mean, we do this when we frequent a place that we really like, and maybe we go write a positive Google review or whatever it is, or we tell other people to go there. Well, there were people that were hanging out with Jesus because of what he was doing and the lives that were being changed. And so it says in verse 4 that while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told them this parable. So this is Jesus, vintage Jesus. He knew that when something like that was happening or people were gathering, this is going to be a moment to share with them information that could transform their lives. And so he tells them a simple story, a simple parable to illustrate life-changing truth. And so here's the story. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plant. Still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a 100 times more than was sown, When he said this, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that those seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable, he said. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the worries and riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. Now, what you got here are three necessities for a bumper crop or a healthy or a large crop. Essentially, you got to have a sower, you got to pay attention to seed, and you got to pay attention to the Soil. So let's just talk about those briefly. You got the sower. Who's the sower? The sower, verse 5, is a farmer who intentionally goes out in the field. He sows some seed, plants seed, scatters the seed, hoping for a good crop one day. That was a commonplace thing in the Galilean countryside. You'd see people broadcasting seed all over the place, walking up and down the furrows in their plowed fields, scattering seed. Because for there to be a harvest, there has to be a farmer. There has to be somebody who's going to sow the seed. Now, I know this in a little way. We live in Mersap, California, on a little two-acre family flower farm where we know a little bit about what it means to uh, have flowers. But somebody's got to go out and sow some seed for those flowers to be a part of our harvest. That makes sense, right? they know no complications with that. It's just what you do. This past year, nobody went out and sowed the seed, okay? So, usually, we have a lot of flowers at Easter. So, we just had Easter last week, and usually, people uh, come over on Easter weekend, and they go out and cut flowers, and they enjoy it, and we enjoy it, And other cars line up on Saturday because they don't want to cut their own flowers. You know how this is. But they want somebody else to have cut the flowers for them and put them in the little cute vases and all of that. And so they line up. They line up on the street because we have so many. And they they love to take advantage of that. Kind of like, you know, I I saw here yesterday that you people are lining up at a new place here in town right now. Kind of a hamburger place, isn't it? Something like that. I mean, the line is really long there. Have you noticed? Anyway, so that kind of thing. Well, guess what? There was no line this year. Nobody came over and cut any flowers. There were a few flowers, a couple rows that, I don't know if we call these late bloomers or something because they were seeded a couple years ago. I don't understand all of that. All I know is that we didn't have a big crop this year. We had basically no crop because nobody sowed any seed. In Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, it says, everyone who calls On the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful to have people that sow seed. Sowers. I love that because this could be you, this could be me, this could be the person next to you. Anyone who proclaims the gospel is a sower. And then Jesus says this about the seed. The seed, verse 11, is the word of God. It's the gospel. It's God's life-giving story. It is the redemption story. It is the salvation story. It is a story that Jesus told, Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, that he is the anointed one, that he is the Messiah, he is the Redeemer. And then he would say to people, like what he said here, faith uh, comes by hearing the word of God. So he would say to people, he who has ears to hear, let him hear this, let him hear the word. Now, when I look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 23 to 25, I see how important this seed is that we are sowing. It's fun to, you know, plant some seed, get some flowers. This seed has immensely more value. It says, for you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, not of a flower seed or some other seed that's going to die ultimately, but not a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. And by the way, that word there is the word logos that speaks about the entirety of revelation, the entirety of the scriptures. You have been born again through the message that is contained in the entirety of scriptures. And then he said, for all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall But the word, this imperishable word, the word of the Lord stands forever. And the word now is the word rhema. So the first word for word, are you with me so far? The first word for word was logos, speaking about the entirety of the word of God. The second word that's used for word here is in the Greek language rhema, which speaks of the specific teachings of Scripture. You were born again through the specific teachings of Scripture. And this is the word, he goes on to say, rhema again, that was preached to you. So how is a person born again? They're born again by the seed of God's word, by the word of God in its entirety, and by the specific statements of Scripture through the work of the Holy Spirit. They are saved, which tells us that as we sow this seed, we can't just give our personal testimony as wonderful as that testimony is our testimony needs to also incorporate the Word of God. Like, as I mentioned, I saw your service last week, and I saw that testimony for wrestler David. I understand he's Dr. David, too, or Dr. Dave. But he did a fantastic job, if you ask me, my input. Thank God for what he shared. It was wonderful. He shared his testimony, how he came to Christ as a part of his wrestling career and all of that but he shared a lot of scripture. Were you here with that? Did you hear that? I thought that was a brilliant way of presenting a personal testimony. And I say this because I think that's very possible that we could spend our whole life spreading seed, but spreading the seed of our story and not getting to the seed of God's story. You know what I'm saying? Because it is the word of God that ultimately births life in people. So we need to get to the word of God. Romans 6, 1, 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would, you not be, why would you be ashamed of the gospel? I'm not ashamed of it because, he says, it's the power of God for salvation. It is the gospel. It is the seed of the gospel that brings people to salvation, to everybody who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. When I think about this, I think about that wonderful story where Jesus met on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. At least it seemed like they were disciples of Christ. But at that moment, they were confused. Do you remember? It had been three days, and they heard a rumor that maybe Jesus was resurrected from the dead, but they weren't believing it. They were troubled. They were discouraged even. They were down on hope, actually. And so Jesus joins them, and he doesn't tell them who he is. He just joins them, and he said to them, Luke 24, 25 to 27, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I mean, what's it going to take, guys? Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures. What did Jesus do? You would have think he would have said, look at me. I'm alive. Okay. <laughs> Any questions? That's not what he did. I mean, he did open their eyes and reveal to them that it was him, but he didn't do that until he first had sown the seed of God's word. Did you see it right there? He like a farmer sowed seed, the imperishable seed of the word of God. He explained. God's life-giving story, the story of redemption and salvation, found where? Do you see it there? Found in the Old Testament scriptures. And so he began with Moses and the prophets, and then he went to the prophets. To begin with, Moses is to share the gospel through the first five books of the Bible. And to explain the prophets would be in the language that he's using here, the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament. So you have uh, De- uh, Genesis, I don't know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you've got Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 2 Kings, and that is, would be what's called actually the former prophets, and then you have the latter prophets, which would be the remaining books of the Old Testament. That's where Jesus went with them, and I really believe that one of the things that we can do when we share the Word of God, when we sow the Word of God, the imperishable Word of God, that changes people's lives, is we could come back to all of the Bible and share all of the Bible. Now, most of us aren't doing that because we're not really sure how to share all of the Bible. Bernice and I have learned a way to do that the past few years. that has been real helpful to us. We've been sharing... Uh, the story of God's Word through 15 pictures. And these 15 pictures we've given to you this morning on an eight and a half by 11 handout, we're also giving to you this morning these pictures uh, through that QR code that's in your bulletin. So if you go to the QR code, you know, scan it, you'll get to the pictures. You can download the pictures in color, or you can download the pictures in black and white. You could do what I have done. You could put the pictures on your phone. And, and then begin to share them with other people as you have opportunity. But let me just give you a simple look at what these pictures are all about. I bet you probably already know most of what these are about. This is about the book of beginnings. Genesis is the book of beginnings. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created man and woman to have a relationship with him and enjoy life with God in all of its fullness, all of its beauty, forever. Everything was perfect. And all that god created but then what happened sin came into the world when they bit the forbidden fruit the proverbial apple we might call it and after that happened adam and eve hid from god do you remember that that's something that we still do these days and as sin came into the world so did death and death and sin multiplied as mankind multiplied So God launched a plan to save mankind from their sins. God chose Abram. That's Abram's family tree right there. You have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And God said to Abraham that through you, someone is ultimately going to come through whom the entire world would be blessed. And this family line ultimately became the chosen people. They were going to be the people through which God was going to reveal his salvation story. Now we're up to Genesis chapters, all the way up to really through the entire uh, uh, book of Genesis, I should say. And and from there, we could talk about Moses. Moses had a very significant part in the outworking of God's plan. I mean, he was the one that wrote the first five books. But Moses is the one that uh, was used by God to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. You remember that? He was the one that came and... Helped them uh, sacrifice a lamb. You remember this? They sacrificed a lamb, and through that, uh, the death didn't come on their homes in this time when death was spreading throughout the city that they were in, that land. Uh, we also remembered, however, Moses was the one that led them through the Red Sea when God parted the waters of the Red Sea. So, in other words, there were a number of miracles that God did through Moses that were humanly impossible to show his power and his love for his children by redeeming them, by buying them back, and by leading them ultimately to the promised land. And when they got to the promised land, what happened there? Well, what happened was instead of going into the land when God said, let's go, they, because they got the report there were giants living in the land, feared doing that, and they ended up wandering in the desert for 40 years to their deaths. Now that could have been it right there. But that wasn't the end of the story as God saw it. There was another generation that was to follow. And that generation trusted God. They followed a new leader named Joshua. They went into the land. They first conquered the city of Jericho. They took possession of the land. They enjoyed living in the land of milk and honey, and they sought to bring God pleasure. Read about that in the book of Joshua. After that, there was another generation that turned their backs on God. I'm not getting this to work here. There we go. They turned their backs on God, and it ultimately resulted in them doing what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. That's kind of where we are today. We do what's right in our own eyes instead of the eyes of God. But then when that happened and uh, their enemies overpowered them, they cried out to God, God sent judges to deliver them. And so there's this cycle that is repeated several times in the book of Judges where the people turn away from God, they turn to God. They obey God, they disobey God. They do what's right in their own eyes, they do what's right in God's eyes, and it keeps repeating itself. And you think after all of that, they'd finally say, you know what, I think God's ways are better than our our ways. They didn't. They actually uh, decided that they wanted some kings to rule over them. They're tired of judges. And so we enter into this whole king period of time where you get kings like Saul and David and Solomon. Remember them? They were kind of the example of what was going on in the world. Saul turned his back on God. David walked with God wholeheartedly. Solomon was on and off in his relationship with God. And after that, there were 39 other kings. Only eight of them had a heart for God. Only eight. And because of that, because there's so much evil around, God sent you see the prophetic megaphone? He started sending prophets to his people to call them to turn from their wicked ways and to turn back to the Lord. How well that went? It didn't go all that well, and ultimately what happened was that God, uh, as a loving father, basically said to his children, well, go ahead and flip it there, it's not working up here. Uh, God said to his, God allowed his children to be overcome by their enemies, and they lost their land. The land that God had given them was taken from them. This is the weeping prophet Jeremiah uh, The consequences of their sin was they lost their land and they went into exile for 70 years. But ultimately, God fulfilled his promise and he brought them back to the homeland. We see the return of that in the last parts of the Old Testament scriptures, where he brought them back from Babylon and Persia into the land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city walls, and to reinstitute worship. That all went sort of good, but not great, because ultimately he had to send three more prophets. And those prophets were Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi calling the people back to the Lord. Where did it go from there? Well, there's a little gap between the Old and the New Testament, actually 400 years. And during that gap, God made final preparations for the coming of Jesus into the world. And so that brings us to Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus? Well, it's told to us, go ahead, and the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus was born, he grew up, he ministered to all kinds of people, he died on a cross, he was buried in a tomb, he rose from the dead, he went back to heaven. And why did he do that? He did all of that to save people like us from our sins, and to bring us back into relationship with God. Jesus said he came to give sinners eternal life. He called it abundant life. And he said, this life begins the day a person receives Christ as their Savior. Their sins are forgiven. They're adopted into God's family. Their death penalty is canceled. And as a child of God, their future is filled with hope. And that hope, in part, can be seen in the early church, the next slide, please, where the Holy Spirit did an incredible work in and through God's people. They didn't do what they did in their own strength. As in fact, Jesus said, before you go do anything, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come and allow the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to do what it is I want you to do. And so these people are transformed, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, the gospel spreads to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to othermost parts of the earth. And the people went out and made disciples, and the 22 letters that follow Uh, The book of Acts are focused on disciple-making. What's that? That's helping people come to Christ and become like Christ. It's helping people grow in their love for God and each other. It's doing what Jesus said, calling people to learn and encouraging them to go out and teach others to learn. And, of course, there's not going to be a continuation of this discipleship in the coming kingdom. There's going to be a day when discipleship is done and God's children are going to forever enjoy and inhabit a new heaven and a new earth. Go ahead and flip it there. We call it a new beginnings, like it was in the beginning. Back in the Garden of Eden, there's going to be a new beginning. And God's children are forever going to enjoy and inhabit a new heaven and a new earth, wickedness, crime, pain, disease, death. It's all going to be a thing of the past. And God's long-awaited promises are going to be fulfilled through Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the entire world is going to be blessed. And God is going to dwell among his people. And life is going to be like it was intended to be all along. Now, I just took you through the entire Bible just in a few minutes. You don't have to take everybody through the entire Bible, but you certainly want to take them through Scripture. And if something like a few pictures and stories could help you do that, use them. You know what I see? I see a culture right now that loves stories and they love pictures, Facebook, Instagram. It's a big part of life these days. And we have the privilege right now taking pictures and stories and helping people understand the story of the stories, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, as you can see here in this text, we want to be people who realize that there is, will be different levels of reception of God's word, of the seed that is sown. Some people will have hard hearts. They'll be like hard soil. It was scattered on a path, and it was trampled on by the birds of the air, and they ate it up. And those who hear and are hard-hearted toward God, the devil will come and take that word away so that they actually can't believe and be saved. You know what this is like. You've talked to people who have a hard heart. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want anything to do with it. And they lose out on the opportunity to connect with God who wants to connect with them. And then there are some people who are rocky soil. Uh, the rocky soil here is pictured like that uh, hard pan kind of soil, but oftentimes there's a little soft soil on the top called top soil. And this rocky soil evidently has as it's pictured here, some topsoil where the seed's planted and all of a sudden something pops up, but it doesn't stick around for long because there are no root system and it withers and it ultimately dies. And you can read about that in verses 6 and 13. And there are other people who are like thorny soil. You can read about this in verses 7 and 14, who they are growing, but then other things uh, choke the life out of them. Weeds and thorns and that sort of things. Worries and riches and other pleasures. And then there are other people who have good soil and the good soil, when the seed falls on the good soil, well that soil nourishes that seed. And that seed is, that soil is soft and it's deep and it's free of weeds and this is the soil that ultimately produces an abundant harvest. A hundredfold harvest is what he pictures. And so James says, do this. He's writing to people like us, and he says, James 1.29, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Isn't that what we long for? We long for that for our family. We long for that for our neighbors. We long for that with our coworkers. We long for that with our friends. We long for that for strangers. We long for them to hear the good news and to receive the good news. We long to see the word of God be planted in their life and save their souls. And my hope and encouragement to you today is to be one who sows the seed. It's not our responsibility to fix the soil. It's our responsibility to sow the seed. Yes, we can cultivate the soil, can water the soil. We can do everything that we can think of that Christ did and be Christ to people. That certainly can make a difference in people's receptivity to the gospel. But we have a big responsibility, and that responsibility is to do the work of an evangelist by sowing seed. Father, would you help us do that in greater ways than perhaps we're doing that right now, that others might hear the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And Lord, we pray that as a result of this study today, there might be changes in our hearts, and our lives. Pray for anybody who's here that's not yet received Christ, that this might be a moment of salvation for them. They would open up their hearts to you. They would not turn a deaf ear to you, but they would be willing to hear and to receive this message that can change their life now and forever. Pray for those of us who are already believers, that we would hear the message that is here, that you want to use us as messengers. And so, Lord, use us. Use us in ways that bring the gospel to a world that so desperately needs good news right now. May we bring that good news in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I hope you'll use those Bible storyboards. Download that. If you want to know any more, there's a little bit more information on the books that we brought along out on the table, and that might be helpful to you. We trust God's going to do a great new work through you.